Psalm 58 is our text for this morning, coming in line with our sermon series uh, through the book of 1 Samuel. And as we come to Psalm 58 uh, this morning, a couple things are, are happening, a couple things are changing here in our approach. One, uh, this, this morning's psalm is a bit of a uh, departure, in a sense, from an actual psalm that is conclusively nailed to this event. There are several psalms that exist and uh, that David has written that are connected to uh, various periods in his life, and we don't know exactly for sure if this one is married to the particular chapters that we covered previously, but uh, there's a strong belief that this is the case. And it does give us, rather whether it would be um, whether it would in fact be married to this particular event or the events just previous or just after, the attitude, the perspective is the same. Uh, and most scholars agree that, uh, that this is kind of a good time frame for this psalm to be dropped in, hence why we're dropping it in here. It seems like we've got uh, enough of an idea to say, this one should probably land here. Uh, this one also comes on the heels of Psalm 57, which we looked at when David was in the caves of Adullam a little bit earlier. Some of the uh, scholars mix and match these a little bit to have some sort of, or they kind of pin them together and saying, maybe this is David's continuation of Psalm 57. Uh, but I think, by and large, we get the heart of David here, and we get the understanding of his perspective. So this is kind of the first one that we're kind of covering that's not really explicitly tied to this psalm, but I think we have enough to say that this is a helpful place to put it. Uh, beyond that, this is also a psalm that we've, a style of psalm that we've not covered before, in that this one is an imprecatory psalm, which means that this psalm is about curses. That's what it's about. Uh, the theme of this, there's a group of psalms in the scriptures that are imprecatory psalms, and, and that word simply there means, it means like to bring down a curse upon, upon someone or something. And so, in the imprecatory psalms, the psalmist is usually writing for God to bring about a curse or a judgment on his enemies, right? So this is kind of the nature of this type of psalm. Thus far, we've seen much of David wrestling with his experience and what's going on and processing his worries and fears. But here, uh, David comes in a bit of a different perspective and delivers something that we have not experienced before collectively as a church, something that we've not covered before. And so we want to look at the text uh, this morning and see what God is doing. Now, you need to remember that this psalm, and we're attaching this to the events that we have found uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And this is, of course, the event where David has been on the run in chapter 23. As we get to chapter 24 there, uh, at the end of chapter 23, uh, Saul almost has him in his grasp, but yet is called away to go and fight the Philistines. And David goes and hides in a cave. David does this with his men, and Saul comes back finally. And he doesn't realize that David is in the cave, but goes in to use the restroom there in the cave, and while Saul is preoccupied, David sneaks down, and he cuts off a portion of his robe, uh, and immediately we're told that his heart struck him, that he should not have reached out and touched the Lord's anointed, is what he says himself, uh, that, that it's because the Lord has anointed Saul, that the Lord has allowed him to be there. And David, although he was anointed also to be king, he was demonstrating that the Lord is in charge. It's the Lord's sovereignty to rule and reign over all things, and that he himself 
himself wasn't going to take judgment into his hand and to kill Saul when he very well could have. As Saul exits the cave, David uh, follows thereafter uh, once Saul's a little bit of a distance away and calls out to Saul and reminds him of his intention. He says, Saul, I was this close to you. I, I have a piece of your robe here. I've cut it off. I could have killed you. I could have, but I did not. I recognized your rule and your authority, and David does so in an act of uh, using language that is familial and loving. He calls him my father. He bows down towards the ground and acknowledges in humility that Saul is the rightful king of Israel at this time, and he doesn't fight it, but rather he demonstrates that he wants to obey the Lord, that he cares about following God more than anything else. And Saul then realizes, in contrast, that his life is not really in line with that. That he has acted evil, he says, while David has uh, acted honorably, has been faithful to the Lord. And he confesses therein that David will indeed be the next king. That Saul's kingdom will not continue. And this is the continuation and the fulfillment, uh, in a sense, of uh, his belief or what was told to him uh, in 1 Samuel 15 by Samuel, telling him that uh, the kingdom would be passed to another, a neighbor of yours who was better than you. And so we find that this is kind of this instance, this situation here, but David has just been exhausted. He's been on the run, he's been under attack, and he finds himself in a position where he doesn't have the resources, the ability to rescue himself. And so as we come to the text this morning, as we look at Psalm 58, we look at this word of judgment, this word of curses that David is writing here. What David is getting at is not just this uh, this desire for revenge. It's not a desire for vengeance, but rather a desire for justice. Okay, now here's what you need to know. As you read through the imprecatory Psalms, it's helpful to keep this perspective in mind, that these are not about revenge. They're not about vengeance in any sense, but they are about justice, right? And when we talk about something being just, and as you read the words, some of it is very heavy. It's quite intense. Some of it is metaphorical, but some of it is quite intense, and it's a heavier, hardcore psalm. It doesn't, and what we're saying here is not that we're trying to lighten the burden or lower the bar for you understanding, but rather giving helpful perspective by which we should see this psalm. What I mean by that is this. Justice, as we say that this psalm is about justice, immediately in our minds, what we go to is what we believe to be the rule of law or the standard of justice. And almost every time we go to our standard of justice or what is defined in our set of legal interactions, as we understand, uh, you know, the laws of the United States or the international laws that are put in place. But here, what we are seeing that this isn't just justice as defined as what we feel is just. This is justice that is connected to God who is perfectly just, right? And so God, his character is one in that he is perfectly just. He does perfect justice every single time without fail. Now, God is not just a God of justice, but rather multifaceted in his character. He is perfect justice, but also perfect love. And his perfect love demands perfect justice, and his perfect justice also uh, demands this perfect love. There's this exchange of these. He is perfection in every facet of his character. And here we see his perfect justice as, uh, on display as David requests this. 
And so as David makes these requests, you'll see that it's not just David being upset and grumpy and wanting to take revenge, but rather he is delighting in the Lord. Remember, this is about David's character in wanting to rejoice in who God is. It's not about him saying, well, you get him for me, God. You go fight that battle. You go and destroy these people. But rather, he's saying how amazing you are, God, that you can see, that you can execute justice. Remember, and this is even what David says in, the, in uh, 1 Samuel 24, where he says, I believe it was in verse 12 and verse 15, where he says, you know, that the Lord will be the judge between you and me, Saul. Two times he says that. He asks the Lord to judge. He's not afraid to put himself out there for the Lord to bring judgment upon him because he knows that the Lord is just. He knows that the Lord will do right every single time and whatever comes to him is exactly what he should receive. And so as we come to the text this morning, keep some of this in mind because as I said, the language is a little bit heavy. It's not something that we have to shy away from or be afraid of, but rather we just want to have the understanding. We want to know why we're reading the things that we're reading. We want to know why he's speaking in the ways that he's speaking. And so here we find David writing from a place of uh, wanting to see God's justice brought to bear on immorality. And so we bring verse 1 into view. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. As the psalm opens up, David addresses the rulers, the authorities who were in charge. This would be addressed at Saul, among other leaders. And he calls them, he comes straight out the gate, and he, he speaks to these rulers of the earth. He speaks to, to Saul, but he does so in such a way, and in, in it's translated in, in my language, as gods. Because really, this is how they see themselves, right? As rival gods to the God of Israel. How, or do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? You are acting like gods, he says to these people. That you think that you have some level of authority where you have elevated yourselves to the position of making decisions on your own authority. He says, do you decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? He's, he's calling into question their ability to execute justice. Their ability to judge rightly. He, in the back of his mind, he's looking at this as contrast to the God of Israel who judges rightly every time. Notice there is a contrast between right and wrong in the text. In verse 1, we do read this. Do you indeed decree what is right? Right? So we have that. Do you judge the children of, the, uh, the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts, you devise wrongs. He, he says, here's a contrast. Here's what's going on. They have devised wrongs in their hearts, and they have dealt out violence. Where did this originate? Where did it come from? It didn't just come from them making stuff up. It didn't just come from them saying, well, you know, here's the situation. I'm gonna, uh, I've went through this logically and decided that these people need to uh, be destroyed and these people are okay. But rather, we're told that this was found in the heart. In your hearts, he says, you devise wrongs. 
and then your hands deal violence on the earth, right? So we have, we have the heart and the hands together. We have something that begins in the heart, but then leads to action in the hands. Begins in the heart, it originates in the heart, but then flows forth into action. This is why the truth of the gospel tells us that we have to have a transformed heart and a renewed mind. Not that we need to change our behavior. Changing your behavior doesn't work. If you don't change the heart, it doesn't matter. You can do all the right things but have the wrong motives inside and it still be wrong. We talk about this all the time. This is why you can do things for God, but he doesn't need you to do things with him because he, he works better, he works more efficient, he's more effective than you. It's not about you doing things for him. It's not about you obeying him just for the sake of obeying him. It's about you being in relationship with him. It's the heart that matters. It's what's inside that matters. It's not about just changing your behavior, but coming to a renewed, regenerated heart. Even Jesus echoes this in Matthew 15, verse 19. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus' claim is that the heart of mankind is bad. It's messed up. It's broken from the very beginning. So no matter what happens, you're dealing with something broken from the very start. And so you have to work to come to a place of having a renewed heart, a new heart, a begin, a, a, a clean heart. When David falls into sin, later in his life, his request of the Lord is to create in me a clean heart. He knows that he can't just change his behavior. He knows he needs to come to a place of renewal in his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, that I might not sin against you. David knows he's got to begin at this place again. This is what we need to understand. It's not about changing your behavior. It's about changing your heart. And the only way you change your heart is by drawing near to Jesus and wanting to know him. You can't just read the rules and follow the rules. You have to get Jesus. If you get Jesus, the other stuff comes with it. These men are characterized by violence. They're characterized by wickedness. They're broken in their heart. He continues in verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Right? He echoes the same thing that Jesus says here. The evil heart is not developed later in life. It's not like, okay, yeah, you're doing well, and then all of a sudden you learn these evil behaviors. But rather, it begins, he says, at birth. David, in that same psalm, says, Behold, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In that same psalm where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, he's also saying, from the start, I'm in the same spot as these people. I was born into sin. I need this. I need a new heart. I need to be transformed. I need to be changed. He doesn't, he doesn't exempt himself from the judgment that's brought upon this group of people. He doesn't make a loophole for himself to be like, well, get them, God. What he needs is the same thing that they need. David says from the very beginning, we're born into sin. Paul echoes this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. As original sin came in, 
through Adam, as he disobeyed God, as he exalted himself to the place of being God, as he doubted the words of God, as he disobeyed, he found himself in this position. And that sin was passed on. We were born in sin, Paul tells us. And David echoes this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They're separated from the womb. He says, in the beginning, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. As soon as they begin to speak, you figure out a way to lie. As soon as you begin to speak, you figure out a way to be deceptive. Verse 4, they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops his ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. He goes on to further describe the evil and the wicked in this way. He says, they speak with words that are as poison. They do not have ears to hear what God is wanting to do. They're closed off. They are ignoring God. Right? He describes this wickedness as a poison. Uh, later in uh, Psalm 140, he echoes this in a similar fashion. He says, They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps, these poisonous snakes. And so they have this perspective where their words are used as poison, as they are acting in such a way where they are effective in destroying with their tongue, with their words, but yet are also ineffective in listening to one who would seek to master them. Right? He's saying even in such a way here that an, uh, a charmer, a snake charmer, or someone who would be, uh, you, you would see stereotypically working with a cobra here, right? We all kind of are familiar with that picture, and they would be playing some sort of music to, to uh, charm the snake and to see the snake matching the movements and that, right? As, as we move through uh, our understanding, right, we understand now that snakes can't even hear, right? Even back here, David was saying, like, the cobra's deaf, like, he can't even hear anyways. All he's doing is he's matching the movements. He's matching the movements of the enchanter. He's not hearing the words. You could be giving commands. You can be giving direction to this snake, but it's not hearing. It's deaf. Even so, David says, these wicked, these evil are deaf to the voice of God. They're unwilling to hear. No matter how specifically the message is brought, unwilling to hear. Paul echoes in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, or excuse me, 128 through 32, speaking of those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiping creation rather than the creator God. He says, they did, uh, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right, they it's God is on display for them. They have the opportunity to do so, to acknowledge God, but yet they decided not to. They see fit not to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, 
though they know God's righteous decree, right? They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, Paul tells us, but give approval to those who practice them. So they know what to do. They ignore that. They practice evil themselves. And then they also are approving of other people doing evil. This is the result of not hearing, not responding to the truth. He says, don't be like this deaf cobra. Don't ignore like the wicked. Because what happens is they become poisonous. They do great damage. They bring this, um, you know, they bring injury to those who would want to hear the voice of God. They become a problem. Now, David pivots then and says, here is the character of these people, that they are wicked, that they are far from God, that they have what they need, but they have decided they don't want to hear, they don't want to obey. As we turn to verse 6, we now get David's first request for justice. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. So now he speaks in this very graphic language as he calls on God to destroy the wicked. He says, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Now, David, again, he's not seeking revenge here. He's not seeking revenge. He's not asking for them to pay for these people to pay the price to him. But rather, he's asking God to bring about justice. Now, even in this request, I want you to see this. Even in this request, David is being he's counting on God to exact justice. But he's also being extremely generous even with his wording. Cuz what does he say? Tear the fangs out of the young lions. Right? Which seems like an incredibly uncomfortable, terrible thing to have happen. But what he's getting at here is he's saying, make them ineffective. He's not saying, slay all of the young lions and just destroy them all. He's saying, make them ineffective. Because a lion without sharp teeth or sharp claws is, you know, that's not as scary. He hasn't even come out and said, you know, let's just slay the lions, let's destroy them all. He just said, Make it so that way they, they can't do any harm. Like, that's his first level of request. Just make it so they can't do any harm. Defang them. Make it so that they're not effective anymore. He just is asking God to make it possible for more people to know him and to see him. He's asking it, God to make it possible to bring about justice, to push back evil. Now, he continues with similar illustrations of this ineffectiveness in verse 7. Look at, uh, let them vanish like water that runs away. Right? So we have this idea of water being poured out onto a surface. It's not effective for anything. You can't use that. It's, oh, it's poured onto a flat surface and it's, it's sheening off. And it's like you can't, you can't do anything with that. It's not useful. He continues... When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. An arrow that is not sharp, as, he, as, he, as the archer pulls back his, blow, his bow and he's about to release it, he says, let it be blunt before it even goes. 
Not only so that it, as it leaves its, uh, as it leaves the bow and flies through the air, is its flight path going to be altered? Not only is it going to, as it finds its mark, is it only, is it going to not pierce, but it's also going to shatter. That, that weapon, that arrow will be disintegrated. It will be completely ineffective and unable to be used again. He uses a third example, which is super weird, but okay. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. Like, all right, I'll take it. A snail that shrivels up into like this empty shell. That it can't, it's, it's not effective for anything. Right? It's like, he's saying like, God, go down there and like pour salt all over. So that way they're just like all like shriveling up. And they're gone. They're not able to destroy or eat or, or consume anything that God intended to be fruitful. He finishes with the fourth analogy. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Let them be dissolved like a snail, or let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. What he's getting at here is that they will be removed completely. That although there is the promise of something that could be effective, they're developing their, their, these plans to destroy those who are God's people, that they are coming against God, that they're having this plan, right? He's asking God, Lord, let their plans be miscarried. A child that is uh, in utero, is being developed, it's a promise that's about to come, come forth. It's a promise that's about to come forth and that its life would be fruitful and that it would be, uh, it would be effective in some sort of way. But he says here, let their plans come to nothing. Let their plans be miscarried is what he's really, he's getting at here that they would be completely ineffective. He finishes with this last uh, description here, which I feel like was probably quite relevant to his original hearers as they uh, sat around, uh, you know, traveling, and especially, you know, as they were in the wilderness here, uh, and they're setting up camp, this, group, this band of travelers, and making their way and hiding in caves and trying to find things to uh, start their fires and to cook with. He, it seems like this, this last verse here in verse 9 is relevant to this group as he has them in mind. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. So it sounds like what he's saying here is that there's this group of people as he's thinking of his men as they're, as they're sitting around and they go out to uh, make a meal and they grab, you know, a like little tumbleweeds and things that are out in this region that they're in, and they're bringing them in to put them under the, to light, light the fire and to put them up to warm the pot up of their food, and they're lighting it on fire. He's saying, before they're the promise of this fire that would heat this, this meal, before it could even catch a blaze, whether it would be green or whether it would be dry, he's like, don't even let it get going. Just sweep the entire thing away. The thorns, the fire, the pot, everything. Just knock it all away. He's crying out for the Lord to destroy the plans of the wicked. Verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet 
in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, as we come to verse 10, we see the effectiveness, the fulfillment of the promise that God will indeed be just, that he will indeed keep his word, that he will indeed bring about justice for those who are wicked and evil. He finishes with the response of those who are righteous watching God do his work. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Now, the righteous respond to God's work. They're rejoicing at God's justice and because God's justice has been restored. The rejoicing is not because the wicked have been punished, but rather God's character has been consistent. Right? So this isn't about rejoicing in the misfortune. This isn't about rejoicing in uh, you know, the terror that one might experience as rejecting God. But rather, it's about rejoicing that God's character, that he is faithful, that he is remaining true, that he will not compromise who he is. This is the, the byproduct of this is that there will be judgment, Right, we were brought into this uh, this metaphor here. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, what he's talking about there is that his. This is a common uh, term that would have been used in uh, wartime. There, as you would come through a city and your soldiers would be marching through the city, uh, he's he's saying our defeat will be so conclusive that we will be so victorious as we are leaving the the city that we have conquered, that our feet will be marching through the streets with the blood of those cities that we conquered. It will be, without a doubt, 100% victorious. This is the language that he's using to say that God's not going to be partially victorious. He's not going to like sort of win. It will be without doubt. It will be evident to all. So much so that when we come to verse 11, this is why we read, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Now, two things I want you to notice here. Like, I guess one thing, but two things to kind of help us understand. When he says mankind will say, he's not talking about those who are the righteous. He's not talking about those who are believers. He's talking about those who are the other enemies of God. Right? He's talking about those who oppose God. He's saying that they're going to look at this and they're going to say, oh my gosh, it's true. His character is true. He will do what he said he's going to do. There will be judgment. They're coming to an understanding, a recognition that there is a reward for the righteous, but there will be judgment on the earth. So much so, uh, they're so recognizing of this that they've not yet moved from their place of recognizing God as the one true God. Because when, they, when, when David writes this, when he quotes this here, what he's saying here is, surely there is a God who judges. He uses a plural word for God here. 
He uses something that would be that that a group of pagan people would say, like, oh yeah, like there is there is a God who judges. We do see this to be true. He's not they're saying that we believe that in generality, like there is a judgment. This is what this group of people are are going to respond with, that they're going to experience. God's punishment here of this group of wicked people, it testifies to the reality of God's justice. So they see that his character is true, that he will do what he said he would do. This calls us all the way back to the book of Exodus, where, of course, God said, I'm going to deliver my people who are enslaved in bondage, out of Egypt, so that one, they might come and worship me in the wilderness, and two, the other nations might see my character. They see his character through the judgment of all of the Egyptian gods and all the plagues, right? You see his character on display as he systematically destroys all the gods of Egypt, and then finally, uh, as it crescendos with his destruction of uh, the of the people as they crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh there who would have been seen as a god in the eyes of the people. As they cross, we find that God systematically puts his power on display so that the nations will know that they see that God is who he says he is. And as he comes, brings his people out of bondage, then delivers them into a place of uh, fruitfulness. He wants to bring them to a place of relationship with him, and he brings them into a place, uh, uh, he brings them to the mountain, Mount Sinai. He comes to this place to reveal himself to them and to bring them into relationship with him. To bring them into uh, an understanding of how they can relate to him. And of course, as they make this covenant at Mount Sinai, It includes instructions about how then they relate to him on the basis of shed blood through the sacrifices. And so as David communicates this, overhanging all of this, overshadowing the entire passage, is the understanding that in order to relate to God, there's got to be some sort of bloodshed. Right? You're going to either come and join his family through an open invitation through the covenant that was enacted at Mount Sinai for his people here, that you're going to join his people and a spotless lamb will be shed, the blood of the spotless lamb will be shed on your behalf so that you can be a part of his family or you can fight against him and he will win. Right? Because the idea, the understanding is, is that we're all under judgment. That's why that sacrifice was existing. That's why Paul wrote earlier on that we are born into sin. That's why he communicated saying, as sin came into the world, Romans 5, through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like we're already all under judgment. This is what we're experiencing. The question is, how do we get out from under that judgment? One way was through that shed blood of the Lamb. As we come to the New Testament, as we find David's line continuing, he writes this, and in the back of his mind, perhaps prophetically speaking, looking to that day where Jesus will come and his blood will be shed. Right? Paul continues, and he echoes this in Romans chapter 5, in verse 17, a couple verses later. For if because of one man's 
trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, what Paul's getting at here is that as we're all under judgment, through the fault of someone else and through our inability to obey God perfectly every day, he has made a way for us to be in his family, to escape that judgment. Because Christ has come and lived a perfect life on our behalf. God became a man to live out the fullness of the law so that we might be in relationship with him, so that he might go to the cross and pay for our sin once and for all through one payment, one final sacrifice, one act of atonement to cleanse us, to wash us in that pure blood. Right? So that as the Lord conquers the wicked, he's not walking over our blood, but rather our Lord knelt in the blood of humanity and washed us with his pure blood. He cleansed us and made us new. He made that opportunity at the cross as he shed his blood for our sin. And that punishment that was laid upon him was effective for us, that we received new life as a result of his faithfulness. And as he died and went into the grave and was raised three days later, we find that we have new life. We are raised with him because of his resurrection. And we can enter into that relationship with him and that we can escape that judgment that it hangs over us. It's about us relating to him, not keeping the rules. He already kept the rules. He already did all the things that we couldn't do. So we need a heart transformation, not just to do the right things. We need a heart transformation. This is why he says, if anyone would seek to come after me, he must lose his life for my sake. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. If you're willing to give it up and say, hey, it's not my way. I don't need to be the, the God. I don't need to be that little, that lowercase g God as David opens up the, the text with. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Are you the one who is making that judgment? Are you the standard? But when we recognize what he's done for us, we realize like he's the standard. He's the true standard. His way is true. His way is perfection. And even in our shortcomings, even in our sin, even in us falling short of his glory, he made that way for us to approach him. What love, what generosity, what kindness. And so we don't judge the children of man. We don't decree what is right. 
we don't deal out violence on the earth, but rather our job is to simply bow our knees to the true king, to recognize his authority, and to say, I will follow you wherever you want to go. Wherever you lead, I will be with you, because you have paid for my life with your own blood. And so we respond together. The question is, as, you've, as we finish the text, do you decree what is right, or do you let God decree what is right? He has, we're told, decreed that his son is the king. And so are you going to listen to what God has said about his own son, or do you want to go your own way? We want to respond to who he is as the king. We want to respond to him with worship and thanksgiving and to recognize that he's got a rule. He's got a rule over us. And he does so, so kindly and gently. So let's pray. And then we'll, we'll respond. We'll, we'll um, respond in worship. Lord, we are thankful for your love and kindness, for giving us the fullness of your grace, the fullness of yourself. And so, Lord, we, um, we rejoice in your faithfulness. Lord, we ask that you would help us to confront that question this morning. As we sit there, that we would, we would be forced to consider who are we saying is God? Who are we decreeing? Who, who are we agreeing with that is decreeing what is right? Lord, we want to rejoice in who you are. We want to rejoice in your faithfulness. And so, draw us near to you. Help us to lay down our independence, our desire to fight, to win out over you. There's there's nothing to win. But Lord, you're so good to us. We've never been loved in the way that you've loved us. So, Lord, help us to respond with eyes to see how good you truly are. We love you. Amen.